Well, today we are beginning a new series that's probably going to take us through the end of March. And in this series, we're going to be considering the Sermon on the Mount that is found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And everything that we consider in these chapters 5 through 7, uh, this is important for you to understand, these are the direct teachings of Jesus, okay? Now, the whole Bible is the Word of God. Uh, we, we receive the whole Bible as being the words of God. But, but these are the direct teachings of Jesus himself. And so we, we definitely want to pay special attention uh, to these. Some believe that what we call the Sermon on the Mount uh, is actually what it sounds like, a single sermon preached uh, by Jesus you know, at one, at one time. Uh, others believe that it's a compilation of a variety of things that Jesus taught over the course of his ministry and that Matthew just chose to present to us, uh, you know, placed all together and, and, and calling it a sermon. And then others believe that everything in chapters 5 through 7 were taught by Jesus at one time, meaning within the same day or a couple of days, but over various uh, sessions. And I would probably tend toward this last view, which would mean that chapters 5 through 7 would represent something of a seminar or a conference that Jesus conducted for his followers. But whatever one thinks about these things, the thing that is of key importance is that chapters 5 through 7 are entirely the teachings of Jesus, teachings that come directly from our Savior himself. The Sermon on the Mount has been called the Manifesto of the King. These are teachings that Jesus considered of central importance for those who were his followers. These are not periphery things. These are important things. These are central things. The Sermon on the Mount is Christ telling his followers what life under his rule is like. How we're to live as citizens of his kingdom. Now, uh, a few months ago, we considered the first 12 verses of chapter 7, when from I think it was September to sometime in November last year, uh, we looked at the Beatitudes, which are uh, the opening section of the Sermon on the Mount. And so in this series, we're going to pick up at chapter 5 and verse 13 and then go through uh, the end of the sermon. So again, what we're going to be looking at over these months is the Manifesto of the King. It is Jesus' teaching on what life in his kingdom is to be like. And this next one's really important. The Sermon on the Mount is a call to be different from the world around us. Jesus cared very much about this. It is Jesus letting us know that to be part of his kingdom means being different from everyone else. It means we have a whole different value system. It means we have different priorities. In this sermon, Jesus calls his followers to be different from the world, and he calls them to make a difference in the world, and he calls them to make a difference in the world by being different. If we will just live as who we are in Christ, we'll make a difference. You don't actually have to set out with the goal of making a difference if you're who you're supposed to be in Jesus. 
we'll just make a difference because we're different. My 94-year-old grandmother passed away on Christmas Day, and at her funeral a few days later, my dad shared about the Christian values that he watched his parents live throughout their lives and the impact that those values made on people around them, people who knew them. And he made what I thought was a great observation. He observed that he, he never really thought that his parents ever focused on making a difference in the world. Like they didn't get up each day and say, how can I make a difference in the world? They just lived the way they did because they knew it was the right way to live. They knew that it was what was pleasing to God. And it did make a difference in the world, even though that was not necessarily what they were out to do. They just lived as Christians are supposed to live, and that made a difference in the lives of people around them. And I think the Sermon on the Mount presents the same idea. If we're different than the world, like Christians ought to be, we won't be able to help but make a difference in the world. It'll just be a natural result of who we are. And so everything that we'll consider in these next few months represent the manifesto of the king, what life under Christ's rule looks like. It's a call to be different from the world around us. It's a call to make a difference in that world by being different. And so we're starting the series by looking at Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Here's what our text says. Again, this is what Jesus says. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So Jesus looks out at his followers and he says to them, you are the salt of the earth. Now, because we live in the time that we live in and, and, and refrigeration is readily available, we don't tend to think of salt this way. But at the time of Jesus, the primary use of salt would have been as a preservative. Salt kept food from spoiling. Uh, salt preserved meat, and it fought off the process of decay. And so what Jesus is saying is really quite clear. Just as salt applied to meat fights decay, so Christians are to, be, are to be people who fight off the process of decay in the world in which we live. Like meat, the world, left to itself, goes bad. The idea that, you know, like forward progress for humanity is like just, that's the trajectory of things, it's not true. And we tend to think it's true because we all live, you know, pretty blessed lives, and, but it's not true. And, and you know it's not true by just looking at the history of the 20th century, which was the bloodiest century that humans have ever lived through. And, and so the world left to itself does not progress, it goes bad, it decays. 
it gets worse, not better. And Christians, followers of Jesus, are to be preserving agents in the world. We are to be people who fight off the decay of the world. Now, God has graciously provided other institutions, other restraining influences in the world. Governments are ordained by God, you know, even though we sometimes have a pretty, pretty critical attitude toward government, and, and sometimes those critical attitudes are justified, but, but God has graciously provided governments to establish and enforce laws that help to preserve society. And of course, the family is ordained by God to be a preserving agent in society, which is one of the reasons it is so tragic what has happened to the family uh, in the United States of America over the last 30 or 40 years. But there is no doubt that the most powerful of all restraints on a sinful society is intended by God to be His people, His church his redeemed and regenerated followers. A man named R.V. Tasker said that disciples of Jesus, quote, are to be the moral disinfectant in a world where moral standards are low, constantly changing or non-existent. Do we live in a time when moral standards are low? Constantly changing? non-existent we're called to be a moral disinfectant salt also flavors meat this is a i I think this is a lesser meaning of the text but I, i think it's still in there and when we say that salt flavors meat i think what we really mean is that salt serves to kind of bring out or highlight the natural flavor of the meat it, 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 it helps to bring out, make the meat more authentically taste the way that it should. And so when Christians fulfill their role of being salt for the world, they not only preserve society and fight off decay, but they help the world be more authentically as it is supposed to be. We, we help the world to, be more, uh, to more closely resemble God's original design. We help the world to be a little closer to what God's original intention was. And so Christians are to preserve and flavor society, preserve and flavor the world. And then Jesus says something that is very tough, very challenging. He says that salt that loses its saltiness isn't good for anything. I'm told that the primary way that salt would be considered to lose its saltiness is when it is mixed with impurities. Mix in enough impurities, and it loses its ability to preserve and to flavor. John R.W. Stott says, Christian saltiness is Christian character as depicted in the Beatitudes, committed Christian discipleship exemplified in both deed and word. And then he goes on and says, If Christians become assimilated to non-Christians and contaminated by the impurities of the world, they lose their influence. And then he says, if we Christians become indistinguishable from non-Christians, we 
are useless. Uh, just what Jesus said. Stott is just parroting what Jesus said uh, in, in these verses that we looked at today. Are you Christian distinguishable from non-Christians? Is there anything different about your character? Anything different about how you act, what you say? I am concerned, and, and what I'm about to reference here is something that we say we are in this church, and it's a good thing in its proper context, but I am concerned that sometimes what Christians in America call being culturally relevant is just being worldly. It's just being worldly. It's talking like the world. It's thinking like the world. It's just being worldly. We're called to be salt. But when we allow too many impurities into our lives, we lose our effectiveness. And Jesus... Kind and gentle Jesus says that when we lose our saltiness, we become useless. We're called to be the salt of the earth. And then in verse 14, Jesus says, you're the light of the world. Salt preserves and flavors. What does light do? Light dispels darkness. Light vanquishes darkness. Light illuminates our path. It lights the way before us. It helps us see where we're going, where we need to go. Jesus says his followers are the light of the world, and he tells them how they are to be the light of the world, how it is that they light up the world. He says that the light we shine before the world is our good deeds. Our character helps to preserve society. Our good works help to light the world, dispel the darkness, point the way to God. Stott tells us that this uh, phrase, good works here, is a general expression meant to include everything that a Christian says and does. Kindness is a good work through which we light the world. I think the world could use more kindness. Christians are supposed to be people that light up the world with kindness. Compassion is a good work through which we light up the world. All of you who serve in the food pantry and, and bless people who are in need, you show compassion to folks who are in need, you are fulfilling this purpose of lighting up the world, being the light of the world. Evangelism is a good work through which we light the world. As we show forth kindness and compassion, and as we bear witness to the gospel of Jesus, we light the world, we dispel darkness, we light the way to God. We're called to be salt, we're called to be light. Jesus would say that if we're his followers, we are the light of the world. But just as light can become useless, or just as salt can become useless, so light can be rendered useless. 
Salt becomes useless by being mixed with impurities. Light becomes useless if it is concealed. If it's concealed. Jesus says that people don't, quote, light a lamp and then put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. He then says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Light is powerful. It dispels darkness. It lights the way. But light can be concealed. I will admit to you that I struggle with concealing my light. And I think a lot of Christians struggle with concealing their light. Let me, let me share a few ways that we conceal the light that we are supposed to be to the world. A neighbor opens up to you about some concern in their life. Maybe it's a health concern. Maybe it's a financial concern. And we sense in that moment that the Holy Spirit is prompting us to offer to pray for them. Not just, hey, I'll send up some good vibes for you as we, as we uh, walk back to the garage. Not that. Thoughts and prayers headed your way as we hop in the car. Now, that's better than nothing. Maybe not the vibes part, but the thoughts and prayers part. That's better than nothing. But what I'm talking about is when the Holy Spirit is prompting us to say to them, could I pray for you right here and right now? And we resist the prompting. And we don't offer to pray for them. We have concealed the light. We've concealed it. The hairstylist. I picked this one because this one can't apply to me. The, uh, the, the, the hairstylist <laughs> ask us to tell them about ourselves. My, my son Austin, when he was, I think, in sixth grade, made an interesting observation about uh, going to the, uh, whatever you, you would call where sixth grade boys go. I don't think you want to use the term salon, uh, but barber I don't think is quite it. The haircut place. <laughs> he came home from getting his haircut and he said, um, why, why is it that the hair, whatever he called him, I, I don't think he used this term, but I'm going blank right now. So he said, why is it that the hairstylists don't talk to kids anymore? <laughs> and so the, so I don't know if hairstylists do this anymore, but there was a time when you'd sit down in the, in the chair to get your, get your hair uh, cut or ladies get your hair fixed, whatever happens uh, there. And uh, <laughs> I didn't anticipate this to be such a struggle up here this morning, <laughs> talking about hair. Uh, but uh, so, so you, uh, you, know, you sit down and this, this person who cuts hair says, tell me about yourself. And even though within these four walls, we tell each other that Jesus is the most important thing in our lives. When someone says, hey, tell me about yourself. The most important thing in our life never shows up in our conversation. We've concealed our light. God places someone on our hearts to invite to church. 
And even though it's a pretty easy way to, to participate in evangelism, we simply can't get ourselves to do it. We conceal our light. Light, like salt, is useless. In the case of light, if it is concealed. You are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Jesus uses these metaphors to let us know how we're supposed to influence the world. We're to influence it like salt influences meat. We're to preserve it. And we're to influence it as light influences darkness. We are to be people who bring light into dark places and show them the way to God through our good works, through all that we do and all that we say. And so I want to highlight a few lessons we learned from these salt and light metaphors, uh, some of which I've already touched on, but they warrant reemphasis and then some additional uh, thoughts. Here's the first one. There is no clearer lesson from these salt and light metaphors than this one. Christians are called to be different from the world. Nothing clearer from this, this section of what Jesus said than that. Christians are called to be different from the world. And so a question that each one of us need to engage with today, an honest evaluation of our lives, am I different from the world? Am I different from non-Christians? Are my actions different? Are my words different? And if you say you're different, then think through, how am I different? Actually, think about it. Don't just say, yeah, I'm different. Think through, how am I different? What is the actual evidence that I am different? Are your values different? Are your views on money different? Are your views on sex different? Are your views on the purpose of life and work different? And you say, yes, Brian, I've got that covered. My views on all of those subjects are different from the world. That's good. How are your actions on all of those things? It's good that your views are different, but do your actions match your views? And this is a rampant problem among Christians, including the one who is preaching to you, is that often our views do not match our actions. Do we use our money differently than the world? Or just the same? Are your actions as it relates to sex different than the world? Or just your views? Is how you spend your time any different than how non-Christians spend their time? What about work? Do you see work like the world does as primarily a means to earn money? And that's certainly part of it. Or do you see work as yet another way to glorify God with your life? There is no more important consideration for us from this teaching of Jesus than for us to consider if we're really different in any meaningful way from the world around us. We are to be different because... We can only prevent decay and illuminate the darkness if we're really different. That's the only way. 
If we're not different, we cannot fulfill the purpose that Jesus says that we have. Christians who are just as impure as everyone else aren't going to be very effective at preventing decay. Christians who aren't different enough to be willing to stand up and shine for Jesus aren't going to be very effective at dispelling darkness and showing the way to Jesus. And this is the second lesson. We have a responsibility to God and we have a responsibility to the world to be a preserving influence and to bring light to dark places. And we need to fulfill that responsibility. And here's why we need to, and this is the third lesson, because the world is bad and it needs salt. And the world is dark and it needs light. The world desperately needs Christians to be Christians because it's a bad place and it's a dark place. It desperately needs the preserving influence of God's people and it desperately needs God's people to be the light that Jesus says we are. Again, the world is in desperate need of Christians actually being Christians. So how can we go about fulfilling our responsibility to be salt? How can we fulfill our responsibility to be light? First of all, I think it's important for us to understand here that salt serves a negative function. Okay, It prevents something. It prevents decay. It stands against decay. It resists decay. Christians are called to stand against what is bad, to stand against what is evil. We stand against evil by refusing to participate in evil, but we also stand against evil by speaking out against evil. And this is something that Christians are increasingly uncomfortable doing, often unwilling to do. And it's something that many Christians have gone so far as to convince themselves that to stand against evil and to resist evil in any kind of active way is misguided, counterproductive, and some even go so far as to say it's displeasing to God. But Jesus says that we're the salt of the earth. Jesus did not say you are the honey of the earth. Just pour sweetness over everything. He didn't say that. He said you're the salt of the earth. And one of the things that's required to fulfill our obligation to be salt is for Christians to be more courageous and outspoken in condemning evil. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail today, but I'm noticing a trend among Christians to be very vocal about all the causes non-Christians are vocal about. But don't say a peep about anything that does not align with the value system of non-Christians. If anything puts us at odds with non-Christians, we just shut our mouths. But then we're really brave to take on all the causes that non-Christians take on. We need to be more courageous 
and outspoken in resisting evil because the causes that non-Christians are taking on are leaving out a lot of really important things. Yes, condemning evil is negative, but the action of salt is negative. And if we're going to be salt, we have got to dispense with silly sentiments that have permeated the church for many years now. Things like, don't tell me what you're against. Just tell me what you're for. I hate that phrase. It is logically ridiculous to begin with. It is okay for Christians to be against things because we're salt. And salt stands against decay. Stand against moral decay with your actions, how you live your life, and stand against moral decay with your words, what you say. But fallen human beings need Christians to be more than only salt. They need us to be more than simply barricades trying to stop them from becoming as bad as they can be. What humanity really needs is regeneration. They need new life that is found only in Jesus Christ. And so it is not enough for us, Christian, to stand against decay. We have to illuminate the darkness with the truth about Jesus. And we do this in a variety of ways. But we can't escape that illuminating the darkness with the truth about Jesus requires a willingness to bear witness to Jesus, a willingness to testify of Jesus, which means a willingness to open our mouths and tell people about Jesus. We've got to be willing to tell it. We must be salt and light. We don't pit these two responsibilities against each other. They go hand in hand. As Christians, we both stand against moral decay and we point the way to new life in Jesus. With both of these responsibilities, the key to fulfilling them is having a vital relationship with Jesus. There, there's no other way. We cannot be salt, we cannot be light unless we have a close, personal, dynamic, vital relationship with Jesus. The key to this is really knowing Jesus, spending time in his presence, being filled up with him, so that as we interact with the world, we cannot help but influence it as salt and light because we're different, because we've been with Jesus. And it's obvious to people that we're different. When we're close with the Lord, by our very nature, we won't be able to help but be a preserving influence against moral decay. We'll just be who we are. Like we can't help ourselves. That's just what we do. We have a preserving influence on those around us because we're close to Jesus. When we're close with Jesus, by our very nature, we won't be able to help ourselves from letting our light shine and telling people 
about Jesus. Remember in the uh, New Testament, I think it was the, uh, I think it was one of the blind people that Jesus healed. Might have been someone who was lame, but I think it was blind uh, who Jesus healed. And then Jesus said, "Hey, don't don't go tell anybody about this." And then the man ran out and started telling everybody about it. <laughs> That's really like a picture of how we are supposed to to be, like. We're close to Jesus, we experience his love, we experience his grace, we experience his goodness in our lives, and what's supposed to happen is, like, we get so overcome and happy about that that we cannot help ourselves but go out and tell people about it. And of course, how many of us are living there? Not very many. (laughs) Not very many. That's what it's supposed to be like. That's where authentic boldness comes from. That's where a willingness to to not worry about the potential for being embarrassed and just speaking for Jesus comes from. It's when you have encountered him in such a way you know he's the greatest thing in the world and you can't help but tell people about him. Like we tell people about the the newest recruit that Ohio State got. Best thing in the world. Best player that's ever come to Ohio State. We run around telling everybody about it because we're so excited about it. I got off my notes. Sorry. <laughs> Where am I? With the empowering of the Lord, we can stand against moral decay. And here's an important point, because I know I made some of you nervous a few minutes ago. With the empowering of Jesus, we can stand against moral decay without becoming self-righteous scolds. We can do that. You can do both. You can stand against moral decay. You can even stand against moral decay very strongly without being a jerk. Now, you're often going to be accused of being a jerk just because you stand against moral decay. And you can't help that. But objectively, you can stand against moral decay without being a jerk. And with the empowering of the Lord, we can shine our light unafraid of what anyone thinks of us. We can do that. To be salt and light, we've got to walk close with Jesus. We've got to continually be encountering Him and being filled with His Spirit. You know how to do this, right? Prayer, the Word, worship, spiritual disciplines, Prayer, the Word, worship, spiritual disciplines, total surrender of our time, talent, and resources to God. Prayer, the Word, worship, spiritual disciplines. Everybody knows this, right? Everybody knows it. There's no other answer, folks. There's nothing else I can give you. We can't put you through enough discipleship classes. I can't. There's no one who can inspire you enough to do this. Prayer, the Word, worship, spiritual disciplines. This is how we draw close to the Lord. This is how we get filled up with Jesus. This is how we get filled up with the Spirit of God so that we go out and be the salt and the light that God has called us to be. So let's commit this year to drawing closer to Jesus, 
Let's commit to fulfilling our responsibility to be salt and light. And let's remember that the responsibility and the opportunity to be the salt and light that Jesus says we are and calls us to be, it is an amazing privilege. It's a really important responsibility. It's really important. Because the world is bad and needs salt. It's dark and needs light. The world desperately needs Christians to be Christians. So in 2019, let's draw closer to Jesus and let's fulfill our responsibility to God and to the world around us. Why don't you stand? 